Welcome to Podcast, the show that puts the positive in podcasting. Our program is created by and for people living with HIV, and we're here to explore HIV research in ways that matter. We're accurate, but not clinical. We want to hear and tell stories about what new research means for us, for our health, our love lives, and our relationships. We're based in Toronto, but global in outlook, and we're produced at the Centre for Urban Health Solutions of St. Michael's Hospital by Universities Without Walls. We're podcast, and we're bringing HIV research to life. Today, you'll hear the views and ideas of our podcast guests, and while we respect their expertise, they do not reflect the views of St. Michael's Hospital or Universities Without Walls. I'm your host, James Watson, a person living with HIV and a community-based research coordinator. I'll be your guide for today's journey into HIV research. It's not often you get to speak from the heart and say what's really on your mind at work. But here at Podcast, I get to do just that. I'm allowed to reflect on important issues and learn along with everyone else from some extraordinary people. And all the podcasts mean a lot to me, but some strike a more personal chord. And this is one of those topics. The harmful use of crystal meth is taking a heck of a toll on our gay brothers, folks, especially our gay HIV positive brothers. Anyone who knows me knows I'm drug positive. I've had my own experiences with substances and been close enough to this issue to be forever impacted. Meth can be like a rocket ship to gay sex paradise, at least at first, I get that. But it's often a one-way trip, and the landing is rough and the long-term consequences can be devastating. But that's not everyone's experience, right? Some people seem to manage their meth use in ways that works for them, and that's okay. But meth is a tricky one. It's insidious and it creeps up on you. Meth distorts our sexual desire and plays off so many of our vulnerabilities as gay men. When a friend of mine heard I was doing research for this show, he asked me for some advice on how to approach a loved one he was concerned about. He wasn't sure what to do or say, and, and I think there are lots of people who have been or are in similar situations, including myself. I've struggled not knowing how to reach out, or even if I should reach out. While most gay men don't use meth, there's an incredible amount of stigma cast on those that do. And from our own community. It's, well, it's shameful. And it makes it so much harder for those seeking recovery to come forward. We don't want people to isolate further. We want people to know that they're loved and supported and that there's a way out. If out is what they want. Addiction is a disease, friends. It's not a moral failing. It became clear to me quickly that I couldn't do this topic justice in a single 20-minute episode. There's just too much to talk about. So we decided to do a three-part series to get a bigger picture and focus on solutions. In part one, we discussed the book Lust, Men and Meth, A Gay Man's Guide to Sex and Recovery by David Fawcett. And in part two, we get up close and personal with Crystal Meth Anonymous, the 12-step recovery program. And in part three, we explore how methamphetamine fits within a harm reduction model. In this third episode of the series Gay Men Using Meth, 
I wanted to focus on a harm reduction approach. So I reached out to two experts. Nick Boyce has been working in harm reduction for almost 20 years. He's a member of the Ontario Opioid Emergency Task Force, a board member with Addictions and Mental Health Ontario, and the director of the Ontario Harm Reduction Network. My other guest, Colin Johnson, immigrated to Canada from Jamaica in 1972 and is a gay rights activist committed to addressing HIV stigma and harm reduction by sharing his journey with others. He sits on the board of the Prisoners HIV AIDS Support Action Network, is employed at the Black Coalition for AIDS Prevention as the Men Who Have Sex with Men Harm Reduction Peer Educator, and co-facilitates trainings and workshops with the Ontario Harm Reduction Network. He is also an injection drug user whose drug of choice is crystal meth. So, guys, welcome to podcast. And so I'd like to start right from the very beginning. So, Nick, maybe you can explain to us what is harm reduction? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, <laughs> to me, harm reduction is a, it's not just something we do or practice. To me, it's a philosophical approach to understanding drug use or working with drug use. So um, within that philosophy or framework, there are things we can do and teach people, programs and services we can offer. But fundamental to all of it is uh, an approach to drug use that treats it as a health issue, uh, as a social issue, and not as a criminal or moral issue. And is there anything unique to crystal meth compared to other drugs when it comes to harm reduction for, for messaging and training or programming? Uh, so every drug is unique. Right? They all have different pharmacologies. They all work differently in the body. They all have different effects. So I think that's one of the things when, when we're working from a harm reduction framework and educating people about drugs, it's important to distinguish you know, what makes one drug different than another. Um, so undoubtedly, crystal meth has its own unique uh, effects on the body, uh, its own unique risks. Um, what I'm mindful of, though, is uh, not trying to create a hierarchy, saying one is, you know, worse than another, or one is more bad than another. Sure. Um, obviously, things are relative. Um, but my concern is, if we start uh, saying one thing is worse than another, um, we lose the nuances there. Um, and you can create stigma around one versus another. Sure. And then the fact is, uh, meth can be used by some people in some contexts, contexts in a safe way. Uh, alcohol can be a very dangerous drug for, for some people in some contexts. So uh, it, it's just um, trying to remove some of the fear around this and, 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 and get to some of the science, which can then help explain some of the, the uniqueness around around every drug. Okay, so what would be then some of the uniqueness around meth? So from a pharmacological point of view, how it works in the brain in terms of it, it, it works on sort of uh, three major neurotransmitters, which are chemicals that uh, create signals in the brain and the effects that it gets. So dopamine is one that's invo involved in pleasure and reward. Serotonin is involved in eat and sleep cycles and norepinephrine, which acts like adrenaline in the body. Uh, what makes uh, crystal meth different than some of the other drugs that people might be familiar with, like cocaine, is the way it releases, is the amount it releases those chemicals in the body. So when we, have, when we feel good, uh, when we have sex, uh, when we eat and feel satisfied, we release some dopamine in the brain. 
and uh, you'll see a little spike in, if you sort of measure this in people's brains. Uh, when we do a line of cocaine, you know, you'll get what we think about a 400% release of, of those chemicals. When you do crystal meth, you get about a 1600% release. So it's releasing a lot more. The other thing that really distinguishes methamphetamine is what we call the half-life. So that, the half-life refers to how long it takes to metabolize and excrete a drug and get rid of it from your body. And methamphetamine has a particularly long half-life, so it's about 12 hours. So if you do some methamphetamine, 12 hours later, half of that meth is still in your body. Another 12 hours later, half of that amount is still in the body. Cocaine, as, a, as another example, has a two-hour half-life. And that's why when people do lines of coke, uh, they're typically you know, going in every half hour doing a bump back, and doing right. another, another line. Right, yeah. wow. So, so now you guys have done presentations together, right, yes. Colin? You've worked yes, with I have. the Ontario, yes. HI, or yeah. sorry, the, the Ontario Harm yeah. Reduction Network. Yeah. I think I've been involved with them for about five years now. Right. Yeah, something about that, yes. So, and you co-facilitate on harm reduction presentations yes. and things like that. Right. So, so why did you decide to talk about your meth use in such a public way? I think it's important that people understand, as Nick alluded to, that people can use meth or actually any other substance and can go along with their life. It does not have to cause bankruptcy or disruption of family or disruption of life. You can actually use substances and get and be productive, you know, day to day. Um, for me, particularly as a black gay man, I thought it's. I think it's really important that people like myself get out there and speak publicly to the to two facts. One that we do use substances in the ACB community, which is something that we really don't talk about. It's either it's either um, disavowed or you know just not acknowledged. Um, whether this is, comes from religious viewpoint or just personal beliefs, there is a very strong bias within my community about not discussing substance use openly and acknowledging that people do use it. Now, the second part of that is that if we're not acknowledging that these things happen, then obviously we're not going to step forward and do something when people do have problems and when people do lose, do lose their, their, their jobs or do lose their families. Um, so I think it's really important to acknowledge that A, we use substances, and B, there are people like me who use substances and are productive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what is your, what would you say your pattern of drug use is now? Well, okay, so that has shifted quite over the years. Right. Um, so just a quick going back, because I think some history is mm -hmm. right. Absolutely. Um, I started using substances from about 1972 when I came out in the gay community. And for me, substance use and then was a part of the gay community. In so many extents, it still is. Uh, so I started with weed, smoking weed, um, that, that became uh, doing a hit of acid. But for me at that time, the whole idea was just enjoyment, to go and dance until four or five in the morning. Uh, it was a social connectiveness that everybody used. Um, when I became HIV, when I discovered I was HIV positive, I sort of, I didn't stop, but I was cure, more careful in my substance use. I changed over to cocaine at that point in time. Uh, and for me, then it was, it was an escape. It was an escape from the reality that I might die in three years. Uh, I just wanted to have life as glorious and as fulfilled as, a, you know, get that nirvana before I passed this mortal coil. 
You're talking about because of the HIV? Yeah, because of the HIV. Uh, not only that, but it also helped with medications in so many ways because, I mean, a lot of the medications were, the, the side effects were just appalling. Mm-hmm. So it did help with that. Um, now I use meth. Uh, so one reason that I use meth is that for me, the efficacy of cocaine has dropped. Uh, and in my opinion, I think the police really should stop interdicting cocaine runs because they're just getting, you know, people are just getting just poorer substances, uh, you know, the efficacy and quality. So A, it's cheaper. Uh, B, I get more, as Nick alluded to, the, that 12-hour high. Right. I really don't have to do as much as I would have with cocaine. I'm on a fixed income. So again, that also helps. Uh, so for me, it's a better, it's, 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 it's more realistic and more practical for right. me to use. And did you always go into uh, your crystal meth use, and I mean, you sound very logical and practical about yeah. this, right? Did you, have you always approached drugs in that way? So I'm going to go back and I'm going to say one of the things that I think helped was, I mean, from the 70s up until now, we were educated. You know, it was something that was passed on with your friends about your substance use. Nobody gave me a hit of acid and said, just take this. It was, here is a hit of acid. This is what it might do to you. So there was that sort of conscious community I found back then that I don't think quite exists as much now. Uh, can you speak a little bit about what, um, I mean, I've done, I've done other interviews with, with meth and there's a lot of abstinence and, and uh, on that approach and, uh, and a, lot of, uh, talk, a lot of talk about what damage meth has done to their lives. And so I wonder, somebody who is a, a current uh, meth user, um, what what good what good things meth brings to your to your life? Okay, so for me now, meth is more something where I'll go home, I'll sit, I'll do, I'll do, I'll do, I'll do, I'll do an, I'll use, I'll do an injection because I do use intravenously. Um, and for me, it's to watch my soccer games, to to, to you know to catch, catch to catch up on my on my television and my Netflix. It's not as much as a sexual drug as it used to be for me when I first started. When I first started, it was far more sexual. I mean, you know, it was, it was all about sex. Mm-hmm. Times have changed for me. And, you so know, how did that switch? Um, okay, <laughs> so to be honest with you, I really don't have an answer for that. I think, I, I think as I, things have changed in the sense that sex is not as important for me as it was 10, 15 years ago. I, I, you know, I just turned 60, which I didn't expect to see. That was one other factor. So for me, it is not as much of a sexual drug as it, were, as it is for so many other people. And, yes. and this ties into another um, uh, framework that we often use within harm reduction to talk about the risks and the experiences and how you can maintain safety, which is a concept known as drug set and setting. So drug set and setting, these are the three factors that go into people's experiences with using drugs and then the risks that may come along with it. So the first thing we think about is the drug and what are the pharmacological properties of that drug, what happens in the body, what do you know, need to know about the half-life, for example, and how it works, what to mix and not mix together, right? uh, how much the drug costs. Then the next thing we look at is what we call the set or the person that's using it and, and why are they using, what is their tolerance, what is their physical size and body weight, um, uh, what's their situation right now in terms of uh, income and housing. Uh, and then the third piece of it is the context in which the use is happening. So is it at home watching the soccer game or is it at the bathhouse getting fucked up the ass? 
this, so those three things all interrelate. Um, so when I first was introduced or saw methamphetamine use, it was actually going to raves, and it was not a sexualized drug. People were using it uh, to dance till eight o'clock in the morning. But they were also typically either smoking or doing a couple bumps of what was called jib at the time. Um, but it was not a sexualized thing at all. It was for energy. But again, that comes back to... So they're using the same drug as some guys who are slamming at the bathhouse now. But the setting and the context and, and, what, and their motivation for using it was different. Uh, so these are all things that sort of fit into that concept of drug set and setting. Well, that's interesting. You know, I was, I, as I was walking here today, actually, at, at Young and College, in the alley uh, with these, there was three young guys, one with their shirt off. You know, I don't know if the right language is tweaking out, but just like, he looked like death. And, uh, you know, rush hour, broad daylight, and it really broke my heart. You know, what, you know, what do you... I don't know what you do in situations like that. I, I, you know, the other issue, and we have a serious housing crisis right now, right? Uh, so the, your ability to, to practice some harm reduction strategies can also depend, again, on drug set and setting. So if you have your own condo and access to a consistent supply from a known dealer and you're using with people you know or trust, uh, that's, that's a different context than you're out on the street and you've been up for three days and haven't eaten um, that's very different, but I, you know, gentrification and this the housing situation. I see. I live at Young and Wellesley. I see. I, I see it more and more. Um, is is that meth that's causing those issues, or is it larger systemic issues? Right. Right. Yeah. yeah absolutely. So for you, I mean, I mean, you say you don't know where that transition no, took place, I but don't. Yes. but what? But but do you find even though now that you're just you don't know yeah. you you will do an injection of meth and you're watching your stories do you find that there what are, what are the negative issues that arise okay so for me okay so for me i don't one of the issues is is that is eating i do lose an, my appetite uh so my solution to that is i i buy comfort foods or i'll buy soups or um even ensure uh, stuff like that so i do get that the other major major problem that's it's 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 it's, it's, it's that has occurred for me is taking my medications, adherence. Now, this is my 30, going into my 37th year of being HIV positive. So I have learned over the years that there's certain mechanisms I can use. So again, I will, instead of taking my medications all at once, I might take them over a two, two, a two hour period just to make it easier and smoother to go down. Uh, I also, there, but that again, that, that being the case, sometimes I do miss my medications. So I, instead of taking it like every 12 hours, it might be every 20 and that sort of thing. But as soon as I keep trying just to ensure that I still try to get my medications. Um, soups work for me. Um, soft foods. Um, my, as I said, my comfort foods. So stuff like patties, you know, stuff that are easy that I'm used to do help me in that case. But those are my biggest are so far my biggest thing. Sleeping, I'm not worried about. If I know I'm doing something, I don't do drugs the day or the day before because I know I have to be here right. type situation. So I'm always, I'm always aware of what I have to do uh, and make sure that, you know, I have my free time because I do know that it takes me at least a day and a half to recover. Right. So, but that's, that's because I know myself as well. And I think that's so important to get across that you really have to know your body, how it deals with the substances, uh, you, your metabolism rate, you know, when you can eat and go, you know, 
all of that. I, so I think it's really critical that anybody who's using any substance actually know and understand what the substance is, their recovery time, you know, what they have to do, you know, or, and also prioritize, you know. Um, the other thing is, I mean, canceling. I mean, if you've got, if, let's say I've got a doctor's appointment or something, and I, you know, I, I overdid my little thing, cancel the appointment, you know, but just being, what was where proactive in so many ways can actually help. And it, it also brings a bit of order to what you're doing in your process. What's, I think what's coming up for me here is that you have a tremendous sort of nuanced and uh, understanding and insights and knowledge here. And you also um, have a roof over your head, your ability, your ability to plan. Um, you know, when we're educating people around meth, the, the whole piece around, you, you know, what goes up comes down. So you're going to need to know this. Um, but you have had a, a wealth and, and years of insight and experience around that. When I think about, you know, some young kid that's being thrown into this and introduced to it, where are they getting that kind of uh, messaging and support? Um, where I get concerned is that that's the kind of the level of support and education we need to be giving people. When you see those guys in the alleyway and when people see that and the devastating impacts that meth can have on people, there can be a, this reaction that we just need to tell people not to do it. And it's this deadly, scary drug. Uh, and I'm concerned that that also, the negative impacts of that kind of messaging too, right, are as bad as not educating people. And, adds, and generally adds to the stigma. So what, is, what would be your uh, frequency of use? Oh, at present, maybe once every three, four months. Uh, it's, oh. I'm not, it's not an every, everyday thing for me. Right. It really isn't. Um, for, me, I, for me, actually, it's almost like a, a, a celebration. So, you know, if I've done something good for the week or that sort of thing, and I know I have some free time, definitely. So I definitely, I, I mean, I definitely can't do the drug runs I used to do when I was 30. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what, they, that's what they were, you know, those three, four days staying right. up. So a lot of, um, there's a lot of talk about the, the correct terminology to use um, and the right language. It's very important in harm reduction. And I'm wondering if you can tell me why and give me some examples. Well, yeah, language is, is uh, important because it, it can convey, and it comes back to maybe the, the beginning of the conversation around the, it's a philosophical way of understanding it, and language can impart your values and attitudes, right? Um, and it can be subtle, uh, and we may not even realize what we're doing sometimes. So uh, when we refer to people as addicts or meth heads, uh, that's all they are. Right. So in harm reduction, we often try to move away from labeling uh, and use people-first people kind of language. Uh, another really uh, good example is often uh, in uh, needle uh, distribution or exchange programs, we'll hear of people going to get clean needles. Well, what's the opposite of clean? Right? Dirty. Dirty. Yeah. Okay. But if I'm coming into those programs and I'm, you know, does that now, do I internalize that? Am I now a dirty person? And, and does that, what's that say about who I am as a person? And then does that feed into my feelings of guilt and shame, self-worth? Maybe I don't feel you know, worthy of anything anymore. Uh, so a lot of, uh, language is very subtle, but can be also very powerful. So we're, we're constantly mindful of that. If people want to call themselves a meth head, if people want to label themselves as an addict, that's okay. We'll use that language. But I think we just need to be more mindful of uh, how stigmatizing language can be and the, the subtleties that language can impart. 
and the other to add to that, um, I mean, if you're talking to to people and the idea is to a help them at whatever level they want to be helped, um, if you're using language like that, they're not going to open up to you about their substance use, uh, you know, and be honest about it. I mean, you know, if you know, if I'm a social worker and I call you a junkie. Well, that's the end of that conversation. And not even yeah. just in a clinical yeah. setting, so said, yes. like, even just within friends, yes. you know, uh, the judgments and, and the look on people's faces when you admit to, to using certain drugs versus others. Yeah. It, it's not even just language, it's just body language too. Uh, it can shut down the conversation immediately. So if, if we're trying to, you know, have open, honest conversations with people, we need, really need to reflect on the kind of language we're using and, and uh, what subtleties we might be imparting there. And, and to add to that, um, to add to that, um, is how people do drugs. I mean, snorting is seen as nice and middle class and upper class. You get that pretty picture of people rolling up that nice $100 bill on television or somebody, stamming, somebody using an inject, a needle, in a, you know, anywhere for that matter. Um, and, you know, this, this, this has always created stratas within the, within the drug, the subculture. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, so for some it's good and for others it's bad, you know. How, and, and I've seen it on many occasions when I tell people that I inject. Oh, what? Right. Know, and the first thing I'll get is people looking at my arms. Right, right, right. You know what I mean? Well, seriously, you know, right. that's just not how it works. It's you another know? layer of stigma. Yeah, very, and it's very, and it's, and it's crucial yeah. to how, how people are going to deal with you if they're coming to you for, for anything, whether it's help or whether trying to quit or anything for that matter. Yeah. We're working primarily with service providers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before we even start talking about harm reduction as a philosophy and an approach, we actually take a pause and say, what are your attitudes and values around people who use drugs? Why do you think the way you do? And, we're, and a lot of this is rooted in our drug laws and the fact that we prohibit drugs and we criminalize people who use certain drugs. Right. right. Um, so we get people to reflect on that. It can be based on media, as you mentioned, media portrayals. Um, it can be based on personal experiences. Maybe you grew up with an uncle who, who uh, you know, you saw him uh, beat his wife when he got drunk. That's going to really shape your attitudes and values around this. Uh, you may have lost friends to overdoses or been at the bathhouse and seen people, as you said, tweaking out. Uh, so all of that fil- those, you know, those filters and those experiences shape our attitudes and values. So we we try and get people just to pause and think about think about some of the bigger picture issues first, uh, and then when you've done a bit of that self reflection, then we open up the conversation around harm reduction. It's it's, it's challenging talking about the language and the terminology, and for me to ask any questions. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> without putting well, uh, my foot in my mouth. Would, but th- that's okay. And that's one of the things we say in our workshops is, you know, you'll get the language wrong. It's ever evolving. It's evolving for me. You know, my language is always changing around this. And then I question, is this the right thing to be using or not? So it, it's not about a matter of right or wrong. It's about just learning and adapting and, and growing. We are changing so much. For so many years, the only model we had was the abstinence model. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was either you quit cold turkey or it's not going to happen. And, you know, and that went for smokers. It went for everybody. Yeah. It's true now. It's still true in many ways. Uh, a lot of the... So people who are really struggling and looking for to change their use, perhaps, the model that they have is... Or the only option that they've ever seen is they have to quit. Right? Um uh, I think a harm reduction framework, uh, success is not based on whether you're using or not. It's about overall sort of wellness and quality of your life. And that can include using or not using. 
If your goal is abstinence, if you want to quit, we'll support you around that. But we'll also talk about there are other options out there. You know, you may not have to, to quit this or quit all drugs. So if you're, you know, if, if there's a case where there's, you know, harmful use going on, I mean, often people won't know they're in that position, right? Or, or sometimes people won't know that they're in a, in a position of problematic use because the drug has taken over or, or I mean, how do you, how would, how would you reach those people? Well, again, I think it's around the language and the attitudes we use. So I think one way we're not going to reach those people is if we uh, give signs and signals that what they're doing is this bad thing and they're bad for doing it. And that's where I get very cautious around these messages around method. It's the devil's drug and all hell's going to <laughs> break loose if you ever touch it. Um, because then if people are using it, they won't open up around that. I also think that it's important that the that for the communities it's important to have people who are substance users leading the way or a sort of you know setting the policies uh, because unless you have somebody who's been there and done it it's really hard for somebody to actually uh, you know be empathic or even to understand um, the varying reasons why people use substances right. so you know so it's nice that somebody might have come out from a, a you know educated with a degree on whatever the case may be but unless you have actually understood where some people are coming from or have input from them i don't think any program is going to work so can you can you tell our listeners here then colin what your strategy is for successful management of your matthews i have good support team i have good friends and i have a great sister um yeah and that's what gets me through. That's good to know. You know? It's important to know. Yeah. And I have and for more, <laughs> you know, for more sort of practical in the moment kind of strategies that can, can keep people safer. Uh, I've heard, you know, people talk about prep and accept. So you prepare ahead of time. Again, this comes back to, you know, you your capacity and your place to do some of this yeah. stuff, right? But if you can prep ahead of time, uh, source your drugs from, from someone you know, can you test your drugs? You know, uh, we haven't touched on this, but, you know, increasingly we do hear of uh, cross-contamination with fentanyl. Uh, so can you test your drugs? Make sure you've got a, a known supply of drugs there. Measuring out your doses. Um, uh, once you're using, uh, stay hydrated. Eat when you can. Set a timer to, to take those meds when you need to. Um, longer and harder the longer you stay a high the harder you're gonna crash right so uh maybe can, if you're in if you're using it in a party context maybe party for 24 hours and then and then call it quits four days you're you're pushing things that's when the psychosis kicks in that's when when the crash is going to get harder um and then the other thing is you know take breaks you you can't be doing this all the time because uh, that's going to, it takes time to rebuild those neurotransmitters to your body to repair itself. Um, so uh, if you can space it out uh, and, and take those breaks. So one uh, last question for you guys. Um, and I've, I've asked this of all the people I've interviewed about meth. So I, uh, I mean, because of the work you do and the talks you give, I'm sure people must come up to you at some point and ask for advice. Um, and, uh, so if someone was to reach out to you who is, uh, struggling with their meth use, um, and doesn't know what to do, um, what would you advise? As challenging as it can be, uh, 
be try to be present with them and have a lot of patience. You know, often people, what they need is, again, not to be told what to do, but just someone just to sit there and listen. Uh, and I know that can be, I, you know, I've seen it. It's, I, it's very challenging when people have lied to you, steal from you, ripped you off. Uh, that can be very challenging. Uh, but you also need to be, make sure you're in the headspace to be able to, to work with that person, right? Um, you need to take care of yourself because if you're not taking care of your own your own self, you're not going to be able to be present for that person. Right? I, yeah, I'm just going to echo that. I think I think it's really important to, to listen, to try to find out where they are, you know. Um, I mean, you're not a psychologist, so, you know, there's no way you can know what the issues are. But you might be able to direct them to places where they can get help or assistance, if that's what they want. But again, it comes down to what do they want? You know, do they want to quit? You know, why are they struggling? What, you know, what are, you know, what are some of those issues? Is it, you know, a breakup, whatever the case may be? So just sitting down listening can give you a better idea of where and how to help somebody. Um, and as I said, you know, um, in some cases, they might need directed care in the sense they might need to go to a, to a program. And in other cases, it might just be that they just want to sit and have, have a conversation with somebody who's willing to listen. And I think if you're, if you're someone who has struggled with meth yourself, made changes, maybe you've stopped yeah. or reduced your use, you can share your personal experiences and, and talk about what worked for you. But don't assume that that's going to work for the other person or that's what they need to do because right. we're all unique and different. And just because that worked for you, uh, it may work for someone else. It may not. It is also important to say that uh, no matter how hard people are struggling, uh, there are we got to keep that hope there because people can change. People do get better. Uh, I've seen it. It can take a long time. Uh, but there are so many success stories out there as well, right? And it's important to, to be able to, to share those stories, uh, give people that sense of hope um, because too often that's, that's lost. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. A big podcast thank you to my guests, Nick Boyce and Colin Johnson. I'm glad I have the opportunity to learn more about crystal meth use through a harm reduction lens. As a social justice approach to understanding drug use, it frames the use of drugs as a health and social issue rather than a criminal or moral issue. It seeks to meet people where they're at and offers practical strategies to reduce risk. Thanks to both of you for an invigorating and enlightening conversation. And thanks to you for listening. Production services are provided by the Ontario HIV Treatment Network.